This episode of Weed and Grub is brought to you by La Vida Verde. La Vida Verde is a health and wellness edibles brand made with organically sourced ingredients. You sound so sexy when you do an ad read. Ooh. Is that okay to say on here? Absolutely. Okay, just because like I'm already thinking about restore, I'm thinking about tinctures, I'm thinking about cookies, and I'm also like, whose voice is that? Ooh, well, I do love talking about products that I love, like La Vida Verde. The super cookies are the most delicious coconut cashew bites. They've got flavors like lemon pie, salted caramel. The brownie browns are so good mm, i'm trying to do what you're doing raspberry, raspberry. Mm-hmm. you know what i did the other day i took some of the restore tincture which is a one-to-one i opened the window in my bathroom and i took a super long shower and i pretended that i was in tuscany oh my gosh where you're just like looking over the mountains and the mm-hmm. shower is like <laughs> steaming on you and you're you, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah right like, i'm in west hollywood you know it's not that magical uh but I, there were some hummingbirds zooming around and i just felt did they yeah. bring a dress inside with <laughs> on their beaks <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely so shout out Levita verde for all of your wonderful tinctures and cookies and products and you can check them out uh on instagram at Levita verde 420 and go to levitaverde.com to see all of their wonderful offerings cannot recommend highly enough they're also excellent people Yo, good people doing great things. That's right. Come on. La Vida Verde. The best medicine starts with the food you eat. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Weed and Grub. with a fork out of a tall glass, like a pint glass of salad, I think mm. is awesome. Mm-mm. Like Caesar salad out of a tall pint glass is Mm-mm. one of my favorite things right now. You're one of those freaks who wants Cobb salad in a fucking cone. Oh, I would definitely do a savory no. drumstick. A savory drumstick, I'm surprised it hasn't come it, out. It does, it has. Oh yeah? It is. There was an episode where we talked about this and then someone DM'd us and was like, yeah, it's a thing guys. And it was oh, like right. a Cobb salad in a crouton cone. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a but, thing. But what about a fork in a pint glass? Like cake cake in a in a glass is so fun. Trifle? No. <laughs> oh, what do you mean? Are you ugh-ing me because that's somehow like elitist or whatever? A, a try like a, one of those. Fuck yes, you, dude. I yes, didn't go to fucking culinary school. You're no, the one who went to culinary school. I'm not coming for you for that. It's just that like a trifle, if a trifle was in a pint glass, I'd be down. But instead it's in one of those big huge things yeah a trifle glass make stand don't listen i don't want cake in a glass it's fun fuck your cake in a glass no i hate it i don't like the clinking oh i I want my fork to clink when i'm having cake and i also want to be able to like use my hands if i want to nobody talks enough about that oh clinking yeah have you ever seen uh love and mercy no. Oh, fuck. It's so good. There's a whole scene where he gets overwhelmed by the clinking of cutlery. I would. Yeah, And of it sort of precipitates a mental breakdown. It's while he's in the middle of a breakdown. But it's like the way that that scene is filmed where he slowly becomes aware of it. And then he focuses on it. And then he's sort of like, oh, it's the fucking cacophony. I get crazy. I hate the clinking. I understand that. I can relate to that. It is an unsung positive note of any birthday party when you slice into that cake and it hits the paper plate with your fork instead of a metal plate with your fork Mm -hmm. because yeah like in an office anywhere yep you're so right yeah 
Mm. That's why I'm a cupcake fan. I actually don't think that cupcakes are all that great, and I don't think they should have risen to the prominence that they held in like the world there oh. a few years ago when they were like the thing pre macaron. I, I would agree with that. When it was cupcakes, mm-hmm. but I did like that there was zero cutlery required, so no clinking. Totally. I don't like the clink. What about? Um, I have certain plates that I won't use because I don't like the way a knife sounds on them. Truly. Yep. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Is it? <laughs> I, I think so. Well, I think it's interesting that you have the plates at all. Yeah, I don't know why I have them. I guess it's just like in case I have extra people around, which maybe I never will again. So I should just, <laughs> <laughs> I should just take this <laughs> time to just get rid of those plates. There's so many people listening to this looking around. They're like, I have never touched any of this <laughs> and probably never will spring cleaning again yeah yeah let's get rid of it all we're all gonna just be sitting in bare white rooms with a chair in the middle of it with our arms on our laps <laughs> staring straight ahead like this is fine this is fine that's oh, how it's man. gonna be no i hope not when you're always on your own oh no um i a clinking is i agree with the clinks i'm against it what about in music is there any type of music that are you bringing you that up because you know about my demo that I was tagged in on Facebook? I know about something from 1993 that you were tagged in on Facebook that I haven't heard yet. It might even be 1991 or two. Whoa. I gotta find it here. Okay, I will play you the very first bars of the demo that I was just tagged in. I was in a band called Crank. <laughs> okay. In St. John's, Newfoundland, with a bunch of fucking awesome musicians who all went on to have like professional fucking awesome rock and roll careers. What was your band? Um, what did you do? I was the singer. Lead singer of a band? Yeah, one of them. Of there were, Crank? There you, were, you were the singer for Crank? I was the singer for Crank. Oh shit, yeah. let's hear this. Okay, here we go. It's a good jam. I can picture all of you. You're holding the mic with two hands, swaying back and forth, mm-hmm. waiting to be brought in. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we don't need to really hear anymore, but the great... The great, okay, so that's Craig. The great part of it for me listening to it is that I remember it so well. I remember it like totally fucking brought me back. And I can hear where we were at that time in our lives. It was 1991 or 92. Nirvana had just come out. I was a huge fan of like Husker Du, Bob Mold, Sugar. Um, There's an album called Copper Blue that was like my favorite fucking album. It was just like, I can hear all the influences right there. Like it's so. And you're picturing your favorite lead singers in your head as your playing the role of lead singer, which is the most fun thing you can do. Yeah, and I got to make up the lyrics, and I got to make up the melody, and so they, they were all, that was jamming, basically, and then, well, we came up with the songs through jamming, and then, um, yeah, put together this six-song demo, and I haven't listened to the whole thing, but I got to use, I was working on uh, Shakespeare monologues at the time, so I, all the lyrics were Shakespeare. Do you remember the lyrics for that song we just heard? It was the, I think it was How the did it go? monologue from... Um, or maybe it was like I'd ripped off some lyrics from Jesus Christ Superstar. I can't remember. Oh, this is like nerd rock. Yeah. This is theater nerd Where rock. Are you going behind? Yeah. I'll have to I'll have to listen to the whole thing and get back to you on that. But I know that I did do a song where the lyrics were Isabella's monologue from Measure for Measure. <laughs> to whom should I complain? <laughs> did I tell this who would believe me? Oh, perilous mouths, the pair and the one in the self same tongue. I could go on. And I won't. I'll spare you. <laughs> 
But yes, that was one. And then I was also in a band <laughs> called Nuclear Riot Party okay. in New York that was fucking dope. And that was a noise band. And I just played like the metal fence and a uh, megaphone and a bunch of shit and banged on shit. And we actually played CBGB. That's amazing. Which is a legendary You venue. went from singing Shakespeare rock mm-hmm. to banging on a fence at CBGB in New York? Yeah. Well, you've had a starried career. It was all fucking moxie, too. Like, I wasn't really good at any of it. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time with, like, very little... Um, and a cool haircut. Uh, I don't know if I had a cool haircut, but I didn't give a fuck. Like, I didn't, I didn't worry about what people thought, and so it enabled me to do stuff like that that's all i want in a lead singer is me wishing i could do what they do (laughs) because they don't fucking good well yeah that's a problem with you i suppose sure (laughs) i thought i was great (laughs) oh we forgot what up mary jane how's it going mike (laughs) it's fine you're great uh welcome to weed and grub everyone this is a podcast about comedy culture cooking cannabis calling shit out and um Trying to be a singer when you're and not really, but go crank. for it. Fucking crank. Crank. Go for it. This is a lesson in going for it to like receive this demo to be tagged in that. I have jealous envy of that because in high school, there was a talent show that was going to be in the gym, just like all high school talent shows. And a group of guys asked if I wanted to be the lead singer because I was super into corn. I had a really good scream. I couldn't really sing but I could be aggressive, sweaty, and loud. Mm -hmm. And they asked me to be the lead singer for their cover band. And they were going to sing Henry Rollins' I'm a Liar. You know, fucking liar. Yeah. And I chickened out and I said no. And then a guy named Ryan Brown did it instead of me. And he killed it. And he was the top dog for the week at school. And I was like, that should have been me. And ever since then, I will always picture that no and wonder what my life could have been like had I said yes to being the lead singer in a talent show. Well, haven't you been in the business of saying yes ever since? I have more so. Like, wasn't oh, that yes. the moment that, that taught was you the that fucking you need moment. to say yes? Yes. Everyone needs that moment. It was brutal, but you're right. Everybody goes through it. And for me, it was like, it was that hearing that and hearing you <laughs> and having an EP hit your ears from 1991. It's fucking cool. It is fucking cool. I love it. I mean, it's so fucking great. I'm so glad they tagged me in that and put it on Facebook. Do you have a no moment? Um, we can come back and keep talking. And if it pops up and bubbles, we can get there. I, I feel like I trace a lot of things back to the moment when I was told no, <laughs> because I didn't know how to restrain myself. And that was a really important lesson. Oh, you were the opposite. You were, yeah, 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 I was yeah, yes yeah. to fucking everything. Put me up front. Put me in the middle. Like, put me, you know, in the middle of the room and I'll perform for everyone. Always. And um, I had a really important moment with a teacher who, who was like, you need to sit down. Now is not your time. Everyone else gets a chance. You've had enough. And it was mortifying. I was humiliated and hurt and angry. And, um, and she, luckily, she dealt with it in a way where she like really explained it to me. And she was like, you just need to let other people shine, too. Uh, and I'll always remember that. I think I was in grade five. Yeah. Oh, early. Yeah, it was really, early in the game. I was, yeah, I was like confident about my ability to like get on a stage when I was a kid. Because what were you, 20 years old in fifth grade? <laughs> No, I actually skipped a grade, so I was like, you're younger than oh, everyone. No. <laughs> the worst. The Shakespeare rock star who yeah. skipped grades? The asshole. See, the fucking asshole. But really what it was was that like, I just, you know, I was so desperate. I was so starved for attention. I think not because my parents weren't great, but they were just really busy. And I wanted people to listen to me. And so, yeah, I kind of, you know, 
did a lot of throwing myself out there at, a, at an early age and it started going great and then I got a lot of attention then you get addicted to that and totally. you know nothing like a pre- precocious child actor fucking worst so I'm so glad I got shut down yeah yeah twas the night before Christmas and all through that <laughs> that totally. kind of shit yeah. no I was mad because I didn't get cast in a lead role in the like Christmas play right and um yeah exactly like I didn't get any speaking roles and there was one speaking role left and I basically was like um you forgot me Good for you. No, not good for me. I think that shit gets beat out of you the older you get, mm. and you forget what you're worth. I needed to learn some fucking humility. I was a dick. Word. Okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> there's fine a balance. Line. There is a and balance. And I think, you know, like right now in America, like there's that balance of like, you know, speaking up and also having a moment where you find your humility and you listen instead of talking. Yo. Right? Real talk. That's yeah. interesting. On a side note to that, friend of the show, Ophelia Chong, mm. great, great, great human, um, brain as big as the sky uh-huh. and did you see her facebook post about somebody asking to pick her brain starts at 150 an hour that's right yep brain and picking starts at 150 an hour what a novel idea that is kind of i think new for me as somebody who grew up with the opposite of you was never told to shut up just didn't really stick up for themselves mm. you know and was always like yeah as long as you like me and you laugh at my jokes then life is good mm-hmm. so i i just like really admire her being like yeah you want you want my knowledge for your company to get rich here's my starting quote which is a drop in the bucket i'm doing you the favor at that price yeah value your time especially now especially now right yeah especially with the it's not that i'm doing that, anything it's yeah. just that i don't have the space to do anything more than do nothing yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's it <laughs> yeah it takes effort to just like get through the day right now uh-huh so wow well let's cool. get into some shit okay what do i forgot what we were supposed to talk about though uh <laughs> Oh, I will say that um, if for everyone listening right now, check maybe on the 4th of July, Mm. we have a recipe that we developed, took some gorgeous, sexy, gooey pictures of, and we'll be on Satori um, for their s'mores edible bites. Yeah, they've got limited edition s'mores edible bites. So fucking delicious. And we developed a brownie to do like you you can kind of pair it with the s'mores because they're five milligrams each so if you just like make these brownies toast up some marshmallows pop a couple of s'mores bites on top bing bang for everybody who is making s'mores s'mores is the classic fourth of july did you know that they were invented by the girl scouts I didn't know that. The earliest published recipe for s'mores was in a girl scout book or guide or pamphlet or something in the 20s so Girl Scouts invented s'mores. Okay. Obviously, we all know their cookie game is on lock. Yes. And they have a fucking mad strain named after them. They're like the ultimate weed fucking organization. Wow, you're so right. right. Yeah. <laughs> boys are getting molested and Fuck girls the boy are... Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to eat a Boy Scout cookie. Right. I don't want to smoke Boy Scouts. Girl Scout is a great strain too. Yeah. Incredible. Yep. Well... Um, I don't know what to say to that. It's just so cool. It is so fucking cool. Yeah, so check out Satori this weekend. We'll put it on our IG and everything too and show off those sexy pics. And you know what? I saved a brownie. You did? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I didn't it's know you had back food. back of the fridge <laughs> in a Tupperware hidden. <laughs> I love I love that. Yeah. You, you hid a brownie from me. Yep, I did. I, I hid it so we could have it this weekend. Oh, sure. Now yeah. that, Okay. Listen, <laughs> don't question my motives. <laughs> Mike. Fucking, as somebody who is low-key addicted to sugar, you've seen what happens if I take a 
big sweet bite of something, I lose all control. So maybe it is a good thing that you hid the brownie from me because if I took one look (laughs) at it and like dipped a thing, it might be over. I just know that like you're going to fucking rip a dab and then be like, where can I like what you like? You asked me where the ice cream sandwich was the other day. (laughs) I was worried it's gone. (laughs) Like, did you eat that? I was like, I don't know. Fucking maybe. Are you keeping tabs on my ice cream sandwich intake right now? (laughs) I am actually. I do think about that ice cream sandwich a lot. I think about it every day. It was a cool house ice cream sandwich. I know. No joke. And after like a big, beautiful dab from a. What is it? The raw garden? (laughs) From the raw garden. Mm. I think about, I do think about that ice cream sandwich a lot and I'm worried it's gone. Yeah. Is it gone? I maybe, but I have a brownie for you. (laughs) Oh man. This is the saddest. So far, what we've learned from this episode is Mike didn't stick up for himself at all. He has a sugar addiction. He gets nervous that ice cream sandwiches are not where they're supposed to be. That's important. You got to keep track of that shit. I'm excited. It's to no have... wonder I go on stage and pretend <laughs> for a living. Yeah, I'm excited to have some tincture this weekend and like tuck into that s'mores brownie. Mm-hmm. T- tuck into some Livy de Verde and then tuck into some s'mores. Yo, 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 yo. Real talk. What else is on the docket right now? Well, we have amazing guests. We who do. I think are our news of the week. Let's just make them news of the week. The Grublet Gazette is a root and rebound yes. for our incredible guests. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. What else are we getting to before that? We definitely need to talk about what happened on the dog walk the other day with Archie Moo when you and I went on a long stroll as the sun went down Uh and kind of tried to figure out what is happening in the world right now. And I think you really landed on a idea that just feels so solid Mm. for where the world is at that it's, it's something I just wanted to bring up on the pod because I think you're really brilliant. (laughs) Wow. Thank you. Well, I think I actually, I don't know if we were talking about the state of the world at the time or if we were talking about age and midlife crises at the time. And then we made that parallel that like COVID and everything that's going on, the societal upheaval and everything, it really feels like the world is, I mean, the world is obviously in crisis and it feels like the whole globe is in sort of a midlife crisis. Exactly. Because I was relating it to my experience of like when I hit my mid to late thirties and all of a sudden it was like the safety of the things that I had set up for myself didn't feel like they were paying off. And I shook things up in a crazy way and changed my life in a crazy way. And I don't like trace that to necessarily having a midlife crisis, but I think a lot of people do sort of like get to a point where they're like, Oh, this isn't what I was expecting. And then they just like act out and do wild things. I think it explains the Ozarks. I think it explains a lot of these Karens, Right. Minus the racism, minus the selfishness. Like if we can strip away mm-hmm. um, a lot of things that are also apparent, a lot of this is coming from this isn't the life I signed up for or thought I would have. This and is, now I'm yeah. losing my fucking mind about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's an empathy I can have in that idea that is brand new for me because I'm so angry all the time. Yeah. Like this is not how I thought this was going to go. And then, you know, not that there's any excuse for acting like a fucking lunatic, but yeah, you can sort of give give them a little bit of space to understand that they are truly, because I think I, I didn't really understand what a huge percentage of people were very fucking close to popping off. Yeah, like they just needed a little poke, half yeah. a poke, yeah, a quarter poke. A quarter poke, like couldn't get a haircut and having a meltdown. Like what I don't think that I knew that so much of the population was under such strain and stress that they really didn't need much of a push at all to behave like total fucking lunatics. Exactly. So, yeah. So just the idea of, because I remember my dad got a motorcycle mm-hmm. in his 50s. Oh, shit. Yeah, like a 
big, beautiful motorcycle, and he took classes, and he got all the gear. And at the end of the day, it didn't work out um, for a lot of reasons with the motorcycle. But I think overall, just the idea of having expendable income, needing to shake up your fucking life. And have that endorphin rush. And have an endorphin rush that is normally squeezed out of you. Yes. And that is exactly how the world seems to be right now, because everybody is taking advantage of the littlest things to live as hard and insanely as possible it's fucking nuts man yeah it also makes me think because you were saying i was like i remember um as soon as i turned 30 i started getting targeted ads Mm. for uh dick pills and balding like it was like on my fucking birthday they were just like facebook is like hey dude you're gonna go bald hey dude your dick ain't gonna work yo you better start buying this stuff and i'm like oh my God, like my data is being sold to mindless companies who are just like, don't worry, one day you're never going to get an erection and then you'll come to us. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck me. So we were talking about how because it is like the world is in a midlife crisis right now, there is going to be a swell of advertising yeah. that is going to come out that is like, you're going to die. Give us all your money and jump out of a fucking helicopter yeah. and be as lawless and irresponsible as possible. Because what else is there? What else is there? So why don't you buy a boat that you didn't know you needed? Or yeah, Let, a very yeah. expensive trip to Vegas where you can cheat on your wife that you've been locked up with for six months. Yeah, I think exactly. there's going to be like a huge amount of fucking reckless behavior and reckless expenditures in the wake of everything that's you know stressing people out. Exactly. And then if Trump gets reelected, ah! it's, a du- it's a double <laughs> midlife crisis, right? Well, that's just a fucking, yeah. I do, but I, th- I do think the, the metaphor that we're saying or the example... Of mm-hmm. like what the world is going through as like a bah! like moment. Yeah. If come November something like that occurs, like I think you're gonna see Karens on both sides of the table. You're gonna see whatever the male Chad I've heard, Ken. Kurt, Ken, whatever. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't even like Karen anymore. It's so no. played out. People. People who fucking lose a screw. Um yeah. uh yeah, like I think it's just gonna get worse. Yep. And then people are gonna blow all their money. And the economy is going to tank. And then we're all going to just slowly unravel until the end of time. Oh, my God. It's crazy. And I think, yeah, like the uh, what I'm really seeing all of a sudden is that like, you know, I mean, that insane couple uh, in fucking your hometown, those lawyers who came out. Shout out St. Louis, Missouri. (laughs) Shout out the McCloskeys. You know, when you have a Beretta and a uh ar-15 did you see the mustard on her shirt no oh what a mess just a barefoot piece of shit who's walking around her yard with mustard on her shirt and opioids in her eyes fuck them i'm so disappointed in my hometown of st louis also i'm so disappointed in the mayor for fucking doxing people who are just trying to make the world a better place by defunding the police the wealth in st louis is so fucked right now if i get to make a tv show there and Mm -hmm. hire all my goddamn friends you better believe i'm not shooting anywhere that it's people like those motherfuckers are there because goddamn i want to bring a show back to st louis but i want to shoot it right because on delmar on one side of delmar you've got people and it's a mostly black community and it's like 70 percent of that community is makes like fifty thousand dollars a year and right on the other side of that same fucking street delmar it's mostly white and they all make three hundred thousand a year Mm -hmm. and that's one fucking street in st louis yeah fuck man fuck it Mm, yeah sorry thank you for teeing up a rant that i didn't know i needed to do but here's the place to do it 
Yeah, fuck, fuck them and fuck that. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I think that like, you know, we're, we're going to continue to see more of that behavior leading up to the election because they've been enabled by a fucking racist in chief. And it's very scary. And I'm also seeing some people uh, on the other, like there's a looking glass through which, you, you know, people on either side are committed to their opinions as though they are right. Mm-hmm. And you can in, in one way or another see them as being completely wrong. Like I uh, was just on Twitter looking at Stefan Molyneux's page. He's a right-wing guy who just had his YouTube uh, shut down like um, Richard Spencer did as well. And Yeah, um, who's the other... Whoever, who cares? Yeah, I don't want to derail Reddit, it. Yeah, there's a Reddit dedicated to Donald Trump that was also shut down. And Stefan Molyneux, I actually know him from when I was a kid, and so I sort of, you know, always follow what he's up to. And the people on his page calling for YouTube to reinstate his account were truly they were like this man is an incredible philosopher how dare you shut down his freedom of speech it seems like the tech companies are trying to control the election and i was like wow that's all stuff that you hear on the other side as well right so it's it's really interesting and a a time to pay attention to both sides like no matter what your beliefs educate yourself about what the other person thinks because i think that's the way to truly move forward you don't necessarily need to agree with them but you need to know what they're thinking like i've been reading about QAnon. listen it's fucking important there are people who believe in QAnon who are getting elected to political office so if you don't actually learn what that shit is about then you're fucking stupid don't bury your head in the sand you might think it's a fringe theory or conspiracy or whatever fucking learn about it because there are people who believe believe in it and espouse it and are spreading those beliefs who are getting elected to political office. So pay attention. Damn. The lights just flickered. Shit. (laughs) Oh my God. Sorry to high horse that. What are you, an (laughs) X-Men? X-Woman? What are you, a mutant? You're a mutant, Mary Jane. That was incredible. Wow. The lights just flickered as you stopped that. I need some weed. I am <laughs> hot under the collar. Yeah, well, Ugh. let's do Buds of the Week and get to our great guests who are changing the weed game for the better. Yes. And doing exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Getting people to pay the fuck attention. Yes. So, okay, can I go first on a bud? Please. My bud of the week this week is actually, speaking of s'mores brownies, mm-hmm. my bud of the week this week is somebody who DM'd us to be like, yo, thinking about you, check out these mint brownies I made. Ooh. Uh, let me pull them up. Here they are. Look at these bad boys. He was like, they taste like Andy's mints. Oh my God. That looks right? like, have you ever had a Nanaimo bar? Do you know what that is? I've never heard of that. Okay. I'll make you one someday okay cool um his name is tony and his instagram is beautiful check out at freakish cactus here's tony's uh bio on ig ios and mac developer lacrosse fan beer and sushi lover car nerd and then look at the beautiful baked goods oh my god right those brownies are crazy yeah do you need an address to send those to um, freakish cactus. Do you want to dox us? Yeah. <laughs> Do- Brownie dox oh, yeah. us. <laughs> no, DM us and I'll, you know, or yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> I just want to eat one. <laughs> yeah, I know. They look amazing. So I just want to say shout out to freakish cactus on Instagram. Shout out to your brownies. Thank you for sending them to us and rocking with us full time. Amazing. Yeah. My butt of the week is Charlotte at Chartown, C-H-R-T-O-W-N. Our friend Charlotte, man, I met her through someone that I wish I'd never met. And she is the best thing that has happened to me in so many ways. So I'm not sorry that I met that person because Charlotte became my dear friend. <laughs> I know that's a weird way to, but we do talk about it sometimes. We're like, well, you know, that was like kind of a weird time, but look what we got out of it is this amazing friendship that has lasted for years. And she's just like, 
I don't know, she's an incredible spirit and soul and singer and artist and actor. And um, I don't know, I just wanted to shout her out and follow her. She's really fun. She does like cool Snapchat filters and I don't know. She also sings. I wish she would sing more on her IG so you could hear her incredible voice. Would you do a double lead singer band situation? Bring back Crank. (laughs) Charlotte's voice is one of those voices that changes the structure of your bones. Yeah, I like those. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, where your skin stands on end Mm -hmm. and then the bumps have bumps. Yeah, where you're like, oh, you're connected to something else when you sing. That's it. Like that's that's a form of sanity for you is opening your mouth to sing like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You flicker the lights when you get mad and Charlotte. <laughs> like screaming about QAnon. <laughs> Sorry. Well, let's get to our VIBs, our very important buds this week. Yeah, man. We talked with Catherine and Eliana from Root and Rebound this week. So Root and Rebound is uh, in the Bay Area, and it's an organization dedicated to restoring power and resources to the families and communities most harmed by mass incarceration through legal advocacy, public education, policy reform, and litigation. And they're both lawyers. Eliana is the Justice Equal Justice Works Fellow, and Catherine is the founder and executive director of Root and Rebound. And they hung out with us uh, for a very, very cool conversation. Yeah, you want to talk about valuing time? Yeah. I feel like we owe them thousands of dollars for the knowledge that they dropped. You know? Yeah. Like, it was an hour conversation where I was like, oh my God, how we are so fortunate to not being be charged yeah. for all of this. Oh, wait, we have to also talk about their... Uh, well, they have a seminar. July 16th, right? Yes, July yeah. 16th, they have a seminar from 12 to one thirty that we will post a link to in the show notes. And it's a one-hour training, um, a basically about fair chance hiring, which is hiring policies that require applicants to be given the opportunity to introduce themselves and just say hello before any criminal background check is performed so the employer will give them a fair chance to get to know what their qualifications are and um the workshop will cover the history of the war on drugs an understanding of how to comply with california's fair chance act and it will have best practices for employing people with records including cannabis convictions so i think it'll be really interesting i'm gonna join absolutely it's free yep you can donate there's a suggested donation of fifty dollars to support the work that root and rebound is doing so if you can afford that please do but if you can't then join anyway 100 percent. this is they are and this is the exact type of thing that is I'm I'm inspired to be a part of the cannabis community because I've always wanted to change the world for the better and being able to meet people like this mm. who are brilliant mm-hmm. and using the law to change lives. Yeah. This is exactly who I want to be around, learn from and like align myself with to be a part of this community. Yeah. So I hope you all really dig this episode. I'm going to just co-sign it and just say for me, this is one of the proudest episodes I've been able to be a part of when we started this Mary Jane. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. And me too. So without further ado, here's our interview with Eliana and Catherine from Root and Rebound. What up, Mary Jane? How's it going, Mike? So good. So fun. So great. So great to have you here, our fabulous guests. Do you mind introducing yourselves, saying a little bit about who you are and what you do together? And separately. And separately? (laughs) Sure. Um, I'm Catherine Catcher, and I'm an attorney and um, the founder and executive director of an organization called Root and Rebound. My name is Ileana Green. Um, I'm an attorney at Root and Rebound. I'm an equal justice 
Equal Justice Works Fellows, sponsored by Hewlett Packard. And I am there working uh, at Root and Rebound to help end the war on drugs, um, as well as get reparations for the war on drugs. Fantastic. We uh, were at the Viola Cares Initiative when you launched uh, with Al Harrington, and that's how I came to know about the work you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about how Root and Rebound came to be? Sure. Um, I can speak a little bit about um, you know, the history of the organization, and Ileana is certainly the expert, the resident expert here on more of the war on drugs and cannabis-related issues. Um, but just as background, um, when I was in law school, I, I, I've always wanted to do work that would be meaningful, purposeful, and really um, support the most marginalized and oppressed groups in, in our country. And uh, when I was in law school, I was lucky enough to be exposed to a group. Uh, I went to Berkeley Law School, and there was a group called the Restorative Justice Committee. And I had never heard of restorative justice, but I got pulled in and I went and listened to a first lecture. And I recognized that so much of uh, what people were talking about, like true justice and community justice and the ways that restorative justice was working in schools to keep kids in school and not getting suspended and expelled, um, and, you know, just even thinking about violence, um, I had done a lot of intrafamilial, like domestic violence work and, you know, knowing that so many people actually want their loved one to better themselves, but also stay a part of their families and not just like incarcerate and shun and ban people. Um, so this idea of like restorative justice uh, was a real, I don't know, light bulb moment for me in thinking about what I want to do with my life. And um that really developed uh, into me spending all of law school really thinking about, um, you know, what kind of organizations were doing good work on the ground when it comes to supporting people that have been incarcerated and impacted by the war on drugs. I kind of became like obsessed, uh, for lack of a better word, with um, the models that are out there looking at organizations like the amazing, you know, Equal Justice Initiative in, in Alabama um, and other attorneys, you know, more locally in California that were doing great work. You know, for me, um, what I've really, what I really feel is that criminal justice work and um, reentry support that we provide at Root and Rebound is, um, you know, a critical part of, you know, solving some of the greatest human rights issues of our time. Uh, you know, the way that communities of color and low-income communities have been impacted by uh, state-sanctioned violence and mass incarceration is is obviously now coming to a head and culminating. Um, in a way that is much more pronounced and everyone is paying more attention to. Um, but we believe that as attorneys, we have a role to play in providing some of the reparations um, for the harms that the system has caused. One of the major issues within the system is how few people are actually afforded with an attorney, um, especially if they've been incarcerated and they come out and they have a conviction on their record and they now have to figure out housing and employment and, and a whole new life. And so there's a lot I can say about what we do, but really um, it comes from me growing up in one America and becoming hyper aware of, of that and really trying to understand this other America and get proximate to these issues and um, learn as much as I can and um, put in leadership as many people as I can that have directly been impacted by the system, learn from them and create a model and create work that is grounded in what people need um, and that's really the role that we try to play in our work. Wow. Eliana, 
I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Do you want to jump on that and just keep it rolling? <laughs> sure. Um, in terms of just why I'm involved in this work, it's hard to follow up with that type of uh, answer, Catherine. But I guess <laughs> to piggyback off of Catherine's answer, just honestly existing in both of those worlds, uh, first experience. Um, I was um, growing up, my very, very first job was at our family business. Um, both of my parents are doctors. Um, my dad was a resident psychiatrist at the Cook County Jail for many years and then uh, went into running methadone clinics and then eventually started his own private practice. Our first practice, I don't know, I say our, I'm not a doctor. Um, his first practice um, was in the Rockwell Gardens uh, housing complex. Um, and so a lot of the patients dealt with substance abuse issues, which is what he specialized in. So a lot of times um, folks would be missing appointments and come to find out they missed the appointment because the city was cracking down on petty drug crimes, got caught with a rock or got caught with a crack pipe. And now you're missing out on um, actually getting treatment for the substance abuse issue you have because you're spending cycles of sitting in jail with bogus charges. Um, and so then being able to compare that to the other America that I saw, I was privileged enough to be able to go to a small, ritzy ditzy private school. Um, and that was the first time I saw real drugs. You don't see real drugs until you go to private school. That's where they're all at. That's where they can afford real good, high quality drugs. So just seeing that um, discrepancy of how folks are treated. Um, I spent a year abroad, I think my sophomore or junior year of high school. And one of the students, she got caught with Coke. I mean, you know, it's a good time, Spain. Um, and so she didn't get kicked out the program. She took a medical leave. And then she went on to Ivy League institution, which is great for her, but that wasn't the reality of, of other folks who were in less of situations for weed or something like that. Mm -hmm. So then just, just seeing those two realities got me passionate about wanting to do this work. Wow. How did you, how did you come to meet Catherine and, and work with Root and Rebound? So actually it was um, my second year of law school. Um, I was looking for, I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't want to go to law school for starters. So I like <laughs> Coming out, I was like, I don't even know what I want to do. Um, and so I found this program where you could just like make up a job from literally scratch. Just there's no restrictions, just make whatever you want up. I was like, I could do that. Um, so I uh, started shopping the idea around. I was like, I really want to do this reparations, you know, for the war on drugs. I felt like California was the only place that was progressed. I was in law school in Louisiana, so it was the total opposite of California. So I was like, I got I to gotta go if I want to do this work. Um, uh, I, the job I was at, um, one of the attorneys there, one of her homeboys worked at Drug Policy Alliance. So she hooked me up with him, heard I had an interest in, in uh, work. I expressed to him, I was really passionate about reentry. I had worked for the Department of Corrections after college um, at a prison, so I really enjoyed reentry. Um, he was like, yeah, I know this group that we've worked with in the past, let me connect you with them. Um, and from there, it was just a really good mesh. Um, they like the idea. I like what they did. I liked being able to implement the idea into their three-prong model that already existed. So it was just a really good natural fit. I guess we should discuss a little bit more about Root and Rebound before we get into like big picture questions that I have. So could we break down Root and Rebound and what it started out as and also what it's become as America has, um, what's a good word, uh, burnt? <laughs> Is that a good way to describe it? I'm not sure what the best way is to say, like, the time we're in right now. The reality is becoming more and more exposed, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's definitely an evolution, um, both for us just in growing. You know, we started at, uh, at Root and Rebound was myself <laughs> as an idea in law school and then brought on a classmate of mine to help me make it a reality. There were two of us, like, literally sitting at my kitchen table, which is, of course, like, 
you know, how all small organizations start. And, and um, the question was, you know, how do we impact if there's one in three Americans with a criminal record, uh, that's 70 to 100 million people. And um, we want to do work at scale, like what would it look like to try to take legal assistance, legal advocacy, um, the power that attorneys have and try to scale that to reach the scale of the, the problem. Um, the other number that I that really astounds me is that there are 48,000 legal barriers that people face because of a record in the United States. So um, there's the mere fact of incarceration that so many millions of people are locked up and or on some form of community supervision so that they're like in the system right now. And then there's so many neighborhoods in which you know, if you go into um, certain certain parts of Oakland, certain parts of DC, certain parts of Chicago, as Ileana's talking about, there's entire neighborhoods where 85% of the men in the neighborhood are gone or have a record. And so it, it hasn't impacted all communities equally. Um, and um, and so racial justice is like, I think that the interesting thing is like racial justice has always been the why behind the work, but it's very important in this moment in time to make that even more explicit so people can meet us where we are and, and kind of come to understand these issues. Um, what I find, you know, people don't truly understand at all, like what criminal justice involvement looks like, what it means. Um, unfortunately, we've learned a lot from shows, like, including myself, I ignorantly like watched and consumed tons of Law and Order growing up. It was like Law and Order SVU, Law and Order like, And um, the reality, is is so different from the way that we're taught this dichotomy of like good bad black white you know way of looking at the world very literally black white good bad right um and i think what we're really trying to dissect here is the narrative around people with criminal records and really trying to break down both through communications and through our work and through policy work, what that really means. So for example, one statistic I think is really telling is that 90 to 95% of people who are incarcerated today are there because they pled to something. Um, and that's really critical for us to understand. So when we say this person's been incarcerated or they have a record, that's not probative of some level of evilness or, or lack of morals or ethics that that person has. What that shows me is that they could not afford an attorney. Mm -hmm. They were not Jeffrey Epstein. They were not Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. They were not Harvey Weinstein who fought his case for two years from his New York City penthouse apartment. These are people who are languishing inside of jail because we have a bail system in this country where you're charged with something and you sit in a jail cell unless you're wealthy enough to pay it. So that's how you determine where you are actually fighting your charges from. And then we have a system that allows you to pay for a team of attorneys if you can afford it and get off scot-free from the kinds of accusations that have been leveled against all three of those men and crimes, some of them that they've actually been convicted of. And for them to continue in their careers, continue to do things that are very much criminal, mm -hmm. quote unquote criminal. And then there's um, and then there's the people who have committed, as Ileana's saying, petty drug crimes, petty theft, crimes of poverty, crimes of survival, um, sex trafficking, uh, women that have engaged in, um, you know, work for, for survival and to protect their families that are um, languishing in jail cells being told by public defenders who have 400 to 500 cases in their caseload. Like, I can't really focus on this right now, 
but I would take a, I would take a deal. I would take a deal. I would take a deal. And they're sick and they're away from their children and they want to get out of jail because it's a terrible place to be and be transported off into a prison, which is a much more less um, populated, more sane environment to be in. So I know that's not really the question you asked me because you were asking me more about the work we do, but I do think that it's important to understand why, um, because that's not an America that any of us should live in. And what we're trying to do is to say, for the mass number of people who have been impacted or who are impacted right now, we want to be there to help you um, make sure that this never happens again. And um, we do that through a three-pronged model that Ileana talked about. So direct legal services, like what you think of as like legal aid, you know, helping people fight Mm -hmm. housing evictions or employment discrimination or um, getting custody and visitation with their children, which is, you know, you come out of incarceration and you're like, where are my kids? And, you know, even if you're incarcerated for something that has nothing to do with your children, it is in a large uphill battle. Um, getting an ID, uh, figuring out public benefits. So we, we actually do a lot of direct services work. Um, our attorneys are across the state of California and South Carolina, where we have offices. And then nationally, we're engaged in a lot of public education work. So just like training, education, know your right stuff. Um, and then we do policy and systems change work. We think about the policies that are in place that permit the kinds of things we're seeing on the street when it comes to police violence and just kind of someone corrected me today and said it's not police brutality it's policing because it's not an exception to policing it's just what policing is um and so like when you look at systems like policing prisons and jails um and then all the reentry barriers like what are the system change things that we need to be moving forward um to create more opportunity so we work at those three levels it sounds like such a huge part of it is just educating people and letting people know that there are those two Americas that you're talking about because there's, you know, I, I grew up in Newfoundland in Canada, um, definitely watching Law and Order and really not knowing anything about, you know, the system. And to now in 2020, you know, really see everything being revealed and to learn about stories like Khalif Browder, who was the story that really led me to understand that someone can sit in jail for having done nothing wrong for a very long time and then ultimately end his life because of what he suffered there. There's, you know, it's, I think, still very surprising to a lot of people who live in this country. People, People seem surprised right now by what's happening. And it sounds like so much of uh, what Root and Rebound does in addition to providing services is is doing that work of revealing the truth to so many of the people in this country. Yeah, we can't expect the system to change. Um, you know, I, Adam, you're curious about how Ileana sees this as well. But for me, like when we talk about systems and laws and policies, like those are all driven by and made up of people. And so it's really important that we're trying to change the narrative Um, or I shouldn't say change it, we're trying to tell the truth so that when people are making decisions, they're making it based on truth, Mm -hmm. not the stuff we've been fed. And even when you look at the media, like the coverage of these issues right now is like, or, you know, there's this presumption of, you know, if someone has a criminal record, if, if, if someone like George Floyd, like there's, (laughs) there's a lot of focus on the fact, like, was he committing a crime? Did he commit a crime? Did he like, would it, does it then justify the kind of violence, like whether someone has a record or, or has been incarcerated, does it in any way justify um, that kind of, of violence? Um, absolutely not. But I think that um, even the media needs to be educated on the ways that um, it talks about people. Uh, I don't know, even the most progressive papers 
continue to speak about people like ex-convict, ex-felon, instead of formerly incarcerated person, a person that's been incarcerated, a person that's systems impacted, a person that, you know, and so. Um, that's such an interesting label. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt, but that's like a fascinating label to, I've never heard that before, as a way to um, to describe a human being. Because ex- previously, incarcerated. previously incarcerated, that makes a world of difference in language. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we call it people first language. Um, and there's just a lot that's been written about. Um, it's like when you think about labels for any other community, um, like the reason that one of the philosophies is like the reason that so much changed for the LGBTQ plus community in such a short amount of time was that like everyone or a lot of people in this country had like knew someone. And so when you're like, oh, that's my neighbor, or that's my cousin, or that's my brother, or that's my friend, that really changes the dehumanizing labels that a lot of people um, had, you know, put upon, uh, put upon people, right? And so Mm -hmm. when we use, when we use words like formerly incarcerated person or formerly incarcerated woman or formerly incarcerated man or a person that's like, we're, we're sort of like putting the humanity of that person first versus labeling them as the worst thing that they've been convicted of or the worst thing they've supposedly done. Can I ask about the war on drugs and where we are now? Uh, you know, what's happening because I, you know, I feel very fortunate to live in California and to see this like legal cannabis marketplace. And, and, you know, I, I'm very, you know, aware every day that I live in a, a state where I have access to cannabis in a way that so many people don't, and so many people are still in prison for. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening now at the state and national level with the war on drugs? Yeah. Um, for one, I mean, I think that the war on drugs is very much still alive and well, even in California. Um, mm-hmm. Just this week, um, a very tone deaf move, but uh, the Bureau of Cannabis Control they submitted a budget request basically asking to create their own police force and get 90 police officers to basically enforce the black market um, and make sure that the, to get rid of the black market. And so that's super concerning because one, we already have a history of how you guys police. And then secondly, um, a, the public health advocates, they just put out a study maybe a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think it's called When the Smoke Clears. And essentially, it was a study on race discrepancies of arrests. And as recently as 2016, in certain parts of California, Black people were 10 times more likely to be arrested for a marijuana-related um, marijuana-related offense than white people. So if you're, you're combining that stat from a couple a couple of years ago, right at the brink of weed becoming legal, on top of you asking for more money to literally create a police fund that uh, doesn't exist. Um, so we're continuing. We're using drugs as a proxy for black people. It's not even a war on drugs, just a war on black people. Um, and that's even further demonstrated by the DA. Um, a couple weeks ago, so like the end of May, they were given special permission um, to basically go outside the scope of their work and they got sweeping authority to surveil and spy on folks who were involved in George Floyd protesters. So you're literally saying the DA had authority to spy on black people. Um, a continuation of a war on drug, on black people that's we're using drugs as a proxy for that. Um, and so that's nationally. I don't know if that's been renewed or not, but that's been within, this is the last couple of weeks. And then there's the, you know, the big thing that everybody knows about the Breonna Taylor situation of this woman being asleep in her house, minding her business, and you're coming to do a no-knock drug raid at the wrong house, mind you. Um, and the person you're looking for is in your custody. So you didn't, you, you put no effort into this. And now you're saying we're, we're attacking drugs, but that's not the case. Um, so that's just a couple of, you know, situations recently within the last month 
that I can name um, of prime examples of how this war is still very ongoing, even in California, where a lot of folks are not seeing that it's happening because it's not happening to them. To get into the cannabis industry in California is so, so, so expensive. It takes so much technical knowledge. So we basically said, we will let all the rich people in who we want to let in. Now let's build a police force to get rid of all of everybody else. Is literally what you've just said. Wow. So does it make a difference that they're saying we're getting rid of private prisons and things like that? Like, are these all band-aids that are trying to not actually address real problems? Like how how taxed cannabis is so that only rich people can do it and how these people are still in prison so it doesn't matter if they're privatized or not like i mean are there are there any real fixes happening or are these all band-aids that are that are our job to call out i want to act like there's no progress especially coming directly from louisiana i can see in california that there is some undeniable progress um but i i think that we're skewed to think that we're more liberal and further than we actually are in reality. I think that there are, you know, definitely it is helpful that we're closing down some of these private prisons, but how helpful is that when you're popping up with a new police force, you know, Mm. to just put them in a different prison? What can ordinary folks who are not, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I want to help. What can I do? How do I, how do I go about becoming involved? And where do you get information? Yeah. And where, you know, how do I, how do I start learning about everything you do and, start educating myself well um as a millennial i will sadly say that between instagram and twitter i do get a lot of news from there because it is just real time so i think following credible um sources on those platforms is helpful for updated real-time information as it's happening um and to stay in the loop i think that if you are in the cannabis industry a big part of that is having discussions with your team about two things one the concept that we need to understand you know the history of the war on drugs and how we got to the legal market on the backs of black people and address that philanthropically by giving back. But then a whole separate issue from that is that we need diversity and inclusion in this workspace, just like any other workspace. And that's not a handout. That's not a give out. That's people who are applying for jobs who are eligible to work at those jobs, getting them because they're the best candidate for them. Um, Mm -hmm. So making sure that we're having those conversations. um, And I know that a lot of times uh, cannabis is like the tech space um, in terms of, you know, startup mentality of like who you know and those connections and who can work together. So if you, all I know is white people, that's all I'm going to employ. And I'm not looking beyond that and just leaving a whole demographic of people out of, you know, the space. Um, Another big part of that, and we're actually um, excited, we're hosting our first um, cannabis fair chance training. We we hold fair chance uh, trainings in general for different industries to teach them compliance of the Fair Chance Act, which requires you to do like an individualized assessment of folks' criminal record prior to, um, I'm sorry, let me correct myself. You have to give folks a conditional offer of employment before doing a background check. And then after that, you have to do an individualized assessment of their background to see if there's a correlation between um, their convictions and the job duties that you're applying for. Mm -hmm. So I think a big part of that, one, um, you shouldn't be screening for drugs, honestly, if you're (laughs) a weed employer from jump and if you are it should be seen as an asset if you've been growing for the last 10 years and you got a conviction for growing and i'm applying for a a job to be a grower this should be work experience um so switching that mentality and seeing things like that um i think is a big part of of switching the narrative and the discussion i would just add that like iliana is really moving forward on that front right like it isn't all you know we're here and we, we try to do a lot of education on the truth and to raise awareness, but there absolutely are things like that both cannabis entrepreneurs, cannabis leaders can do, and then also consumers can do 
um, you know, that is really important. So I would also say, um, as we try, like we're going to have an event and I'd love to put it in your show notes. Um, it's going to be kind of like a zoom based webinar for, um, you know, cannabis companies to understand like what was the war on drugs and what is the war on drugs? Cause Ileana is really good about highlighting, even for me, you know, in doing this work, I will sometimes speak about the war on drugs as something of the past, because in some ways we have moved forward and in other ways, um, we who have moved forward isn't everyone. And, and so I think that that's, um, we only know what we know. And I think that's a lot of what we're talking about. So, so the, the conversation that we're having in July at this, um, at this event will, will be kind of zoom based conversation for cannabis companies to join, to learn about like, okay, what do we mean when we say the war on drugs? Um, what is the history of the space that now you're legally operating in? Um, I do want to highlight that there are some amazing like black and brown owned cannabis companies, but for the most part, it is a very, very white space. Um, and so how do we create diversity and also how do we create more openness and dialogue around the philanthropy, the kind of reparations, the um, inclusion work that's really needed in the cannabis space, given the very brutal and violent history of, of this um, substance for a very, very long time. And like you said, I mean, it is a very healing and um, an important substance for a lot of people, a lot of people that I know and love in their lives. Um, and so it's not, there is no um, judgment or um, at least in my estimation about using it. It's really about using it in a way that is um, also kind of like you'd want to be a knowledgeable consumer about anything. And like being, the more you know about the, uh, Eliana shared with me today, there's a, more of a, a compilation of, of information going around about the most equitable cannabis companies, the black owned businesses, the brown owned businesses, the businesses that are philanthropic, that are giving back. Um, and so I think even as a consumer, you can make some of those choices. I would love to talk a little bit about reparations because I heard you both speaking about it with Al and you've brought it up a couple of times here. And it seems like a very obvious and necessary, actionable, important thing to do. But I also was talking to someone who I will not mention them leading up to this, but they were saying things that were kind of like, they got tight and they were like, but none of this is my fault. Why am I? What do I? This is crazy. Because it feels like it feels like a communal responsibility instead of and that makes people feel responsible for something and they're like yeah I don't like how that feels that's uncomfortable and so I was hoping to like just talk more about it and learn more about what that means and what that looks like so one reparations the literal definition is repairing a harm um I like to use that word to set the tone see where everybody is though I know it makes people uncomfortable so I'm like <laughs> let me see where y'all at um, <laughs> okay so, but yeah, the literal definition is repairing a harm. And I think that that can take many forms. Um, mm -hmm. I think that what we're doing right now is repairing a harm between, um, one, my project is funded by a company who cares about this issue. A lot of my work is funded by um, the uh, tax revenue reinvestment grant um, from like GoBiz. Um, and so having those money, those monies funnel back into communities that have been obviously harmed from a very specific situation. Um, I think it's very reasonable and I don't even think it's as far-fetched. Um, I hear some people, you know, having that argument maybe about reparations for slavery of that being a further, but the war on drugs, all y'all were alive for the most part when this happened. Like this is not 
a time where you can't remember or weren't there to see. Um, and so I think definitely, I think corporations in general, I think corporations in the government in general it is your job to give to society as much energy as you're taking out of it. And if you are a cannabis company and you're taking dollars and energy and work out of society, you need to be giving that back. And I think that it's important to see where you need to be giving that back is to a space that already exists. People knew that selling dope made money for years. That's why people do it. Like, this is not a new concept. So the fact that you're, you know, acting brand new, like, hey, I'm the only person who can make money off of it is, is just false. And you're literally excluding someone out of that market. So I think anyone who's, I don't know what industry this person is in, but anyone who is in the cannabis industry saying that they're not contributing to it is just flat out misinformed. Um, and that one I can say with certainty. You're, you're benefiting from policies that other people are literally dying from. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say, um, you know, the word reparations like Ileana is, um, there's not one definition. I mean, the definition is to repair harm, but there's not one definition that I'm aware of, of what that looks like. But what I know as a Jewish person is that if I walked into Germany and went and did a tour of German prisons and saw all the people behind bars were Jewish or 50 to 90%, but the population was 13%, that would not sit well with me. Um, That is a country that is far from perfect, but they have really, um, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of understanding, there's a lot of guilt that comes with understanding the Holocaust. Um, There is a sense that, both on a government level and at a community level, responsibility has been taken and continues to be taken and reparations are made, right? So I think what the harm in this country that people of color face is 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 multi-leveled. It's what we're, what I'm really think about when some, I mean, I always welcome to talk to people like that because um, no, you personally have, you've only done what you're personally responsible for in our lifetimes but we all live in and benefit from a country with a really ugly and brutal history. The founding of this country by whites, because there were people here a long, long time before that was based in genocide of Native Americans. And then the one of the original sins of this country is taking African people away from their homes and bringing them here and abusing them and violating them and selling them and using them as chattel. And our entire economy as a country was based on slave labor. And so while that is outlawed today, um, there are many forms of which white supremacy, the founding of a system that would allow white people to treat Native Americans that way, to treat Black people that way, to then treat immigrant people, brown people that way, remain. This country is founded on a sense that like white people have to retain in power, have to remain in power, and people of color are below that. And um, that shows up in so many ways. But when I bring up the example of the prison is because, you know, not only did we not give like the 40 acres and a mule after slavery and like actually make a repentance for repair and kind of address those harms, but like we've actually perpetuated and increased the harms because we can go into prisons today, we have black people, for example, I I don't, you know, they make up, you know, I don't know, 5% of San Francisco or 7% of San Francisco, but like 76% of our jails. It's, it's um, not only have we not repaired the harms, we've continued to create systems 
that further marginalize and further oppress people. That's what the civil rights movement was about. That's what we're seeing today is people are saying like, this country needs to deal with its racism. And that isn't individual racism. Like your friend who you're talking about, it's not about him, it's about our society. And I wanna live in a world where all people are liberated and free, not just white people. So what does it look like for us as white people or for just, yeah, for the world, for our country at large to give something up, to give something back? And Ileana spoke about it like in very eloquently that it can be funding a fellowship for um, a person um, to, to work on these issues. Um, funding, uh, I, I see, I've seen certain uh, groups this week giving to, um, uh, 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 historically black colleges and universities. Um, it can mean at a community level, like I've heard that in Evanston, um, outside of Chicago, that they're thinking about reparations and what's happening on a local level and what that means to give back. It can mean promoting um, black owned businesses in your community, celebrating certain holidays. Um, there's, there's not one way that reparations looks like, but it has to, not only does it mean repairing harm, but we can't even talk about it until we really understand what the harms are and what our personal responsibilities are, not because we woke up and did something, like my family wasn't here when this happened. Like that conversation is, is not what it's about. It's about we've all, those of us that are white, at least I can say for myself, have benefited from a country where we are presumed good and um, innocent. If I am trying to get into my car in the middle of the night in Oakland and I'm locked out and Ileana's locked out of her car on the very same street and someone walks by us, we are perceived differently if a police officer walks by us. I didn't do anything to deserve that. And as long as I benefit from the presumption of innocence and goodness in Ileana and people with dark skin are presumed bad and guilty, we need to be making reparations. And I, I think what's really important about reparations for this specific situation and why it's needed is because there's been an admission that this was intentional. Um, in 94, there was an interview with one of Nixon's aides, I think John Elridge, where he, he straight up, he literally said that we knew that it was, we were, um, we were against our two enemies, the anti-war left, the hippies, and Black people. And by associating with drugs, we could criminalize them every night run up in their building, raid their homes, and break up their meetings. It's literally a quote that a government official said. So this is on purpose. And then there's countless bits of evidence that the United States brought coke into the into neighborhoods on purpose to counteract um, success that was happening in the 60s after the civil rights movement and to break up that um, sense of pride and um, movement that was coming to age with the Panthers and other groups like that. So I think reparations are super needed because we flat out said that we intentionally wanted to harm you. Do you see any of the social equity programs uh, being successful right now in, in cannabis? I'd love to hear about social equity and if that's being if that's a good part of, of reparations at all, if it's happening in a, in a useful way right now. I think it's a great idea on paper. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of things are great ideas and we got to work on making them better in practice. Um, I think, one, as I said, weed is highly regulatory. Um, it requires a lot of, of business skills, a lot requires a lot of financial literacy. So in order to have a person succeed, you need to equip them with those skills. And if you've removed them from most of their adult life and put them in prison, they weren't able to access those skills. Um, so I think that while well-intentioned, I think that um, there's still work to be done. 
Um, and I think that corporations can pick up some of that slack and, you know, pair as incubators um, in ways that are not predatory, which has been a, a big issue of folks, you know, predatorily um, taking advantage of folks because they are unaware of um, of those business skills that we just listed. Meaning that they like get a license and then uh, someone will come along and sort of just use them for the license, but not actually equip them with any other support? Yeah, essentially. Mm -hmm. So sometimes in, in certain jurisdictions, you can be an incubator, meaning that you are um, allowing a social equity applicant to like use your space and other um, things that you're supposed to provide them with. Um, however, the social equity applicant is supposed to keep a certain percentage of their company. So folks will, one, try to charge people for things that they're already supposed to be giving for free. You're attaching to the social equity applicants so you can get the, um, the licensing fee reductions and be fast-tracked. Um, and then you're swindling somebody out of their, um, the amount of their business that they're supposed to own. So somebody's walking away with maybe $100,000 because this is great right now, and I'm losing $13 million worth of equity in my business. So I could take a $100,000 cash walkout because I need to eat today and my family needs to eat today. So predatory practices like that, realizing that folks are in poverty and so I can do those things. Um, so I think there needs to be more oversight of things like that so that that doesn't happen. But I think that the concept in general is a great idea. Um, yeah, and I, and I think like to add to that, um, there just, I think needs to be just even on a soft level, right? Like not even, I mean, I think the social equity programs, as Ileana said, it's all about how they're done, but also just generally, I think the cannabis space would really benefit um, from a much stronger dialogue and understanding about these issues. And um, I would love to see uh, a label like we have USDA organic or something where we have companies, cannabis companies that are like, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the label is equitable or has something to do with the war on drugs or something around, um, you know, promoting healing and less harm or something, you know, something that would actually um, be uh, even more than than what's required by law or what the practices are. So, for example, a certain percentage of your employees are from underemployed communities um, that you um when you run background checks, you do it, in, if you're gonna run them at all, then you do it in a way that is um, individualized and fair and equitable. Um, that you, a certain number of people in your leadership team um, are people um, people of color or people, again, from under underemployed communities, um, that there's some philanthropic um, element to your brand. And I do think that I see, you know, I'm getting emails on my, from, you know, massive companies that have nothing to do with um, as directly, I guess, we're all have to do with the system, but, um, you know, aren't cannabis companies. I have emails from Instacart saying, you know, Black Lives Matter. And so if, if, if companies across America, Amazon, you know, Apple, Instacart are all saying Black Lives Matter, it's definitely the time for cannabis companies to step up and not just say that, but to actually follow through with practices. And then in regards to the social equity programs, I think when we see if something's working, we look for outputs. Um, and right now, about 4% of the industry is owned by Black people. So clearly, you're not getting an output. So when you contrast that 4% is owned by Black people compared to Black people being 10 times more likely to be arrested for weed in California, it's like, well, I don't know how I can say that this is working. And also, it, in preparing for this, we were learning that a lot of people who are incarcerated um, like there's more charges, like they put a bunch of charges on you so that you take one charge 
or something like that. Like, and then because you can't afford a lawyer, you're just like, God, get me out of this fucking thing. And then you take that one hit and that one half of a strike is actually like 10 strikes. So I I think that's a huge issue. One, I I do think that folks are overcharged generally. Um, I think another issue in this country in general is habitual offender enhancements. I remember one of the saddest moments, um, I was in my school's criminal defense clinic when I was in law school. So we were representing clients pre-trial versus right now, uh, which is like post-conviction. And we had a guy, um, unrelated charges. One was for cocaine and the other one was for like a petty theft that he completely just didn't do. They had no evidence, like it was just flat out clear he didn't do it. The cocaine, that's a little easier to prove. So they basically wanted him to take a plea for both of, you know, the charges together in exchange for not charging the um, drug conviction as a multiple offender. So he had previous convictions. So if he got convicted of the drugs, which was highly likely, he would have spent a lot of time in prison versus if you take this plea so that I can get a win, we can work something out. You've already been in jail for almost two years at this point. What's another year compared to the 10 that you're probably going to get for this conviction? So it's it seems sometimes like a win to the person, but it's really not. You're doing them a disservice and putting them against a rock and a hard place and like which one's better. And And it's certainly the case that one crime or one mistake can result in five charges. Um, and and um, we see people all the time that are told like, okay, if you don't plead to the felony, but you plead to the misdemeanor, it's, you know, you'll be fine. Or even you don't have to serve jail time. But like, that's always on your record then for the rest of your life. And again, mm-hmm. when you're talking about um, people of color, it is like now double sigma, right? Because it's like, there already is, there are a lot of studies showing how tough it is for um, black applicants and applicants of color, as opposed to white applicants. Um, like there was one study actually done just just like so sad and horrifying around criminal records and workplace. And it showed that white applicants with a criminal record were more likely to be called back and hired than black applicants with no criminal record. And so I think it's important to remember that um, at least what happens like Ileana saying post conviction and working as we do with so many people Um, with records and therefore so many people of color that um, these things become in in real life off paper they become um, multiple forms of of stigmatization and marginalization Um, and that's why it's so important to the extent that we can to have courageous conversations and bring these things into the light and really understand them so that we can make better decisions um, and be more conscious. Like I think one of the so implicit bias is a word that you know is is incredibly important to understand that it isn't just about like doing something on paper and saying like everyone with a record is now eligible for, to apply or we're gonna. It's it's also doing implicit bias training. What are your what are your thoughts and beliefs or what are the thoughts and beliefs of at your company around um, people of color, around women, around people that are not able bodied, around um, trans people, like to really. Um, to really be an equitable company, we need to be talking about criminal records and we need to also be talking about um, these identities that are for- unfortunately like over-policed and therefore over-represented within the prisons and jails in this country. To, to directly answer your question, habitual offender enhancements should not be applied to drugs anywhere and that's a huge issue. Word. Can you talk a little bit about uh, working with um, Al Harrington and Viola and Viola Cares? 
Yeah, it's been really cool so far. They're a really fun team. Um, it's been cool to really work on this uh, this project that we're going to be uh, coming out with in the fall. It is a um, a know your rights toolkit for folks who have cannabis uh, convictions. So it helps you navigate through just life generally as a reentry tool. Um, things from record cleaning to um, housing to employment, um, but then it also more narrowly focuses on giving you the tools to try to enter the cannabis industry with a with a record. Um, so explanation of, like we said, the social equity um, programs, as well as other benefits that you can um, get and how to just enter the industry. So it's been really cool. I'm really excited. I think that people are going to be into it. Um, and mm -hmm. so, yeah. Are there other cannabis companies that are coming to you right now to ask for guidance? They should be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where can they find you? Yeah, there are yeah. a few that Ileana is just doing a tremendous job. And um, there are a few companies that were really um, open, uh, especially around this event. And in like the training and education work we're doing, we're trying to bring on more partners and say, look, if you care about these issues, here's an opportunity to co-host the event, which really for, for this first event doesn't mean putting dollars behind it. It literally just means um, sending it out to your networks, putting it on your social media, putting it on your Instagram, raising awareness about the issues surrounding the war on drugs, um, that this event is happening. And so we're trying to even just get companies on board with kind of in their own communication strategy, um, partnering with us to share about this message. And um, I don't know, Ileana, if you want to, you know, speak in depth about any other companies that you've seen um, good things from. I know you've, you know, done a lot of like, um, you know, conferences and events and, and, you know, you're working really hard to develop a lot of these relationships. Yeah. So like Catherine said, if you know anyone, we're really interested in co-hosts for this current event that we have coming up. Um, but I think that a, a lot of companies are in the right headspace and just needing a little guidance of, of where do we go from here. Um, yeah. Uh, as Catherine mentioned, I was fortunate to be able to go to a Trailblazers uh, conference in Utah, uh, which was really great and able to meet a lot of folks in the industry there. Um, particularly folks at a company called Openness, which is really great um, and social um, justice oriented um, to start uh, navigating that space. And I think it goes beyond just plant touching companies. It should be, you know, folks who are helping that industry. It should be, you know, folks like Openness who are actually at the investor level um, where well, real wealth is coming from and you're able to make strong contributions and control folks, you know, who are under you, who you're investing in. Um, so I think that we need to look beyond, you know, just dispensaries, but um, more broadly at the cannabis community. And where can people find you for all all of the things that you do? Oh, you want to go? we're at rootandrebound.org. I thought you were going to start talking. <laughs> yeah, I don't like, but yeah, we're we um, we have an Instagram handle, Root and Rebound. We're on Facebook at Root and Rebound, and our website, rootandrebound.org. And um, if it's possible. What I'd love to do, because our event is, um, this first event is like a really great dovetail for people who listen to this podcast and enjoyed it, um, a way to kind of like go deeper on these issues and understand more. Like in some ways, this is a conversation and it's, um, th this will be much more of like a, a training um, and something that's like very, very focused. Um, and so uh, if you've enjoyed, if they people have enjoyed listening to this, if you've enjoyed listening to this, like we will um, ideally put the link in the show notes so that people can click on it, go. It is a free event with a suggested $50 donation um, for an hour and a half of training. Um, and, you know, we also leave people with like, that is your next step. And then after that, we hope to leave you with more next steps because 
I know that this stuff can feel really depressing, but at the end of the day, we want to empower people, but we want to empower people through truth and truth telling. And so it is really hard to reckon with some of these things, especially when, you know, for a lot of people, like I said, cannabis has been really healing and important to them on a day to day, just like self care and, you know, just, you know, it's, it's a healing plant for a lot of people. It's medicinal. And I know a lot of people in my life that have benefited. And at the same time, yes, it's depressing. Yes, it's hard. But like, um, you know, I think it is, I think it is important to know these things so that we can do something about them. And that at least I have hope in seeing what I'm seeing in the world today. I do have a lot of hope that things are changing. Oh man, I feel so good. Y'all are, mm. Thank okay. you so much Thank for hanging you. out with us and talking with us. And we're so excited to share this and support the work that you're doing. And it just, it's really great to have you both on. Thank you so much. Yeah. Also, Thank you for having us. Yeah. Please follow us at Weed and Grub on Instagram. We are going to put the link that will also be in our show notes in our link tree on our IG be tagging. So all you got to do is click. If you follow us anywhere, you're going to click somewhere. Um, Thank you both again for joining us and bye everyone. Bye. Bye.